right, good morning, everybody. We're glad that you are with us. High school? Now, now, can you guys call me about the black and white stripes next time? I just want to make sure I match just the two of you. What is it? It's black and white? Yeah, did you guys call each other? I just want to check. Okay, all right. Uh, We are so excited that you are with us. If you are new, my name is Mike, and we are glad uh, that you're here to join us. We want to dive into the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 26 is where we will start. Really, this is a part two from last week. So if you missed that one, you may want to tune in online. Uh, But we were just kind of amazed as a church uh, family, and as we were debriefing the, uh, the services last weekend about what God did, and it was so powerful to see, uh, first of all, so many people just being honest and admitting they needed pray for, uh, prayed for, and then secondly, uh, to see from, I had the best view in the house because it didn't look like a church service, it looked like church had broken out. It wasn't just one guy on a stage with a whole bunch of people watching, it was like people ministering to each other, which is what we want to have happen. And, and as a result of that, we, we decided to open up this section over here. You see it where it says prayer on the glass? Those two sections. What we want to begin doing is having uh, people who are elders or staff people, and we want to raise up a prayer team to do this too, but we want to have people there after every service uh, that if you need prayer for anything, and you, you know, we can watch your kids for a few minutes more, it is just fine. But if you need prayer for anything, we just encourage you to take advantage of that. It's part of what God encourages the elders to do. If anyone is sick, uh, to come to the elders to be anointed and prayed for. But even beyond that, we recognize there's so much we carry into a place like this. We want to let you know about that starting today. Even during the worship time, we'll have folks over there uh, if you need prayer. So, Matthew 26. Jesus is uh, about to be arrested. Verse, second part of verse 50. Did I tell you Matthew 26? Okay, you're just flipping to 50. Okay. We got to check. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions, we know Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, Peter was either an amazing swordsman or he totally missed. I'm not sure which one it was there. Jesus replies to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus has this great line. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, legion was about 6,000. So Jesus is like, listen, Peter, really? You think I'm impressed by your swordsmanship here? Do you, I can call down 72,000 angels. Like, we're good, bro. We're good. And, and one of the things that a story like this confronts us with is in, in the life and the ministry of Jesus... There is something that looks like strength, but is actually weakness, and something that looks like weakness, but it is actually strength, right? Peter looks strong, grabs a sword, starts chopping away, but Jesus looks at him and says, no, no, that's weakness. Strength is Jesus's restraint. Many times throughout the narrative of his death, he will say things like, no one takes my life, I give it freely, See, Peter's sword looks strong, but it's actually weak. Jesus' restraint looks weak, but it's actually strong. 
Right? Anger is easy. Forgiveness is hard. Pride is easy. Humility is hard. In God's kingdom, what looks like strength is often weakness, and what looks like weakness is often strength. Go if you would to John chapter 19. Jesus is a similar conversation with uh, Pilate, who was the Roman official overseeing part of his trial. John 19, verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, Jesus must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace, and he asks this of Jesus. He said, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Have you ever been around anybody that plays the, do you know who I am card? Right? Is that, that may feel like strength, but it's actually weakness. And then I love this line from Jesus. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, you know, you think like, What actually is true is that it's God's grace to you, even in giving you this authority, that's that's the real power behind it. It's not the fact that you're so awesome and have this authority in and of yourself. And and so what you see in Jesus, particularly throughout the narrative surrounding his death, is you see things that look like strength. Oh, Peter taking his sword and taking a swing. Or Pilate boasting in his position. But what looks like strength in God's eyes is often weakness, and what looks like weakness on the part of Jesus is actually magnificent strength. Do you not think I can call down 72,000 angels if I needed to? Do you understand my Father's the one who gives you this power? And so there's this weird relationship in the Scriptures between human weakness and God's power And I want to explore that a little bit today. Go if you would to the book of Judges. Flip over to Judges chapter 6. Now, Judges is a pretty depressing book because the the nation of Israel is in the promised land and they they keep like six times they succumb to the following cycle. Step one, they rebel. Step two, God disciplines them. Step three, they cry out for deliverance from the discipline. Step four, God raises up a deliverer who delivers them and then repeat six times. And these deliverers were called judges. And it's interesting who God, cho- who God chooses to be these folks. The most famous one of them is the man named Gideon. We meet him in chapter 6, verse 14. <coughs> Excuse me. God comes to Gideon and said, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Midian was uh, a foreign nation that was oppressing the Israelites. Am I not sending you? Now, like any good Old Testament character, they don't just say yes. They've got some suggestions, some hints, some concerns. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my family. So the conversation kind of goes, hey Gideon, I want you to go and be my deliverer. Okay, but, okay, but my tribe isn't the greatest tribe. My clan isn't the greatest clan. My family is the least in my clan, and I'm the least in my family. And God says, perfect. I can use someone like you. 
And so Gideon gathers 32,000 men to take on an army we estimate, you know, is two or three times its own size. Chapter 7, verse 2. So 32,000 men gather. And I love this. See, we think these are just cute Old Testament stories. These are profound lessons about the way God works in human history. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into your hands or you will boast in your strength thinking my own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave. So 22,000 leave. And God comes again and says, you still have too many. And whittles it down to how many? 300. Now, this is just a cute Old Testament story, right? No. Why does God do this? So that no one will boast in their own strength. So God chooses the dude from like the least tribe, the least clan, the least family, and the least of his family, gives him 300 men, and says, you plus me equals victory. Gives him something impossible to do. They pull it off, but God arranges the circumstances so that no one will think, dude, Gideon was awesome. It's almost like he picks the worst dude imaginable for this post just to make the point it was him. Go if you would to 1 Samuel. See, there are these stories that we just kind of go, oh, isn't that cute? Like David and Goliath, right? 1 Samuel 17. And, and, and the story gets turned into like this metaphor for, you know, you and your personal giants. We all have giants we're facing today and God will give you stones. And that's not the point of the story. It's not your individualized, therapeutic, courageous motive to take on your giants. This, no, it's about how great Yahweh is and how God defeats what looks like strength with what looks like weakness. So you get a guy named Goliath, who is the best human warriorship can do. We get his dimensions, his size, his spear, I mean the whole thing. And then we get David, the youngest. Isn't that interesting? Always the youngest. He shows up and he starts going, hey, why are we letting this dude taunt the armies of the living God? And everyone tries to shush him up, particularly his family. So his older brother, verse 28 Listen to this one. How many of you have older brothers? All right, this will sound familiar. Well, not the words, but the tone. (laughs) When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked, why did you come down here? And with whom did you leave the few sheep in the wilderness you were watching? In other words, don't you have like chores to take care of? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is, said the loving older brother. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, how many of you have used this line? Now, what have I done? Said David. I cannot even speak. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. When David said, what David said in response to them was overheard and reported to Saul. Saul was the king at the time, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose account of this Philistine. I'll go out and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. 
And we know the rest of the story, right? Five smooth stones. He only needs one. And he takes care of Goliath. Now we Americans want to turn that into a personal manifesto about how you can overcome the problems in your life. I tell you the story it teaches exactly the opposite. That it is impossible for you to overcome the problems in your life. And that God really likes arranging circumstances so big that you won't ever mistake you as the Savior of you. Go over to the book of Acts. We're all over. We're just all over. High school? Nope. Nope, 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 nope. The four-second delay revealed everything about where your minds were. (laughs) Acts 4. Now, you know what's funny is there are all kinds of people in Orange County talking about how cold it is. That's funny. Cold is single digits, brothers and sisters. You don't know cold. Acts 3, verse 4, sorry, 4. Don't correct me. 4. Verse 13. So, isn't it encouraging that when Jesus gathered a crew around himself, he selected the like religious elite of his time? Isn't it awesome that he picked the best and brightest for his disciples? Isn't that great? What? Did you say no, he didn't? That is correct. He did not. I couldn't, I couldn't tell if you were, I couldn't tell what you were yelling. If you're going to yell, yell so I can at least hear you. What? See, he did it again. I mean, you're, I lose my whole train of thought trying to figure out what you're saying over there. So just stick with amen. I can at least recognize that as a murmur. No, I'm being sarcastic, right? The, the, he chooses just complete and utter dunces to be his disciples. I mean, how many times, seriously, how many times does he say, why are you so dull? How many times does he rebuke them for their lack of faith? And it, isn't that hopeful in a strange way? Because if there's room for them, there's room for us. And even, even as the church explodes after Jesus ascends into heaven, even then the people are going, who are these guys? Chapter 4, verse 13. This is in front of the Jewish leadership. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were, what? Unschooled, ordinary men. Hold on a second, they were saying. This isn't how it's supposed to work. These guys aren't all-stars. And yet God was so unmistakably powerful in and through them. The text says they were astonished. Because it wasn't explainable. Who wants to be a part of something explainable? And so they look at these men and they just go, well, these are ordinary, unschooled men. Paul describes himself that way. Go to 2 Corinthians. See, there's what looks like weakness turns out to actually be strength. And what looks like strength so often turns out to be weakness. I mean, Goliath looks strong, but he's weak. David looks weak, but he's strong. Gideon looks weak, but with the Lord's help, he's strong. Midian looks strong, but they're actually weak. The disciples weren't impressive. And yet, because of their availability to God, people were astonished because they were just ordinary people. Nothing special about them. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul just says so many things in this letter. 
along these lines. Verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond the ability, our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. And notice this. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul's listing all of these difficulties and he says, oh, in, in this, God was teaching us not to rely on us. Flip over to chapter 4. He's talking about the glorious treasure that is the gospel in us. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, before jars of clay was a Christian band, the idea is that, is that the juxtaposition of treasure and plastic. Treasure and like an earthen vase. Tre- you don't put treasure in like really cheap stuff. Unless you're God. And then you put treasure, and then he's talking about jars of clay. Our frailty and humanness. And notice why. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now do you see a theme? Gideon, you've got too many men. I don't want you to think it was you. David, you're the youngest in your tribe. You're tiny, no armor. You look weak and frail. You're perfect. To go up against Goliath. Disciples, unschooled, ordinary, fantastic. Let's build a church on you guys. And Paul says God does this. He delights in doing this so that no one will mistake who the source of strength, victory, and power really is. Is Most famously, he addresses this in chapter 12. Flip over there. Now Paul, to us, Paul's a big deal. Right? He writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He was a missionary to the non-Jewish folks. He's one of the reasons you and I, as non-Jewish people, are sitting here 2,000 years later. But in the first century, (laughs) Paul's contemporaries weren't that impressed with him. I mean, there there were some super apostles, they were called who would travel and and sometimes come to the churches that Paul had founded, and people would be like, man, these guys are real preachers. That Paul guy, his letters are pretty heavy, but in person, he's not a whole lot to, to look at. And so there are times when Paul had to defend himself and his calling. And it's fascinating. He starts, so he starts going, well, guess who's been shipwrecked more than anybody else? Guess who's been whipped more than anybody else? And then he says, I'm out of my mind to talk this way. And he starts boasting, but he says he boasts in things that show his weakness. And then he begins to talk about revelations he's receiving from God, visions he's receiving from God. Verse 7. And he says, Therefore, because of these visions, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now that could be physically, something he had an eye problem. Could be emotionally, he was concerned for his churches. Some think it was literally a, a demonic sort of thing. But whatever it was, he calls it a messenger of Satan. And he says it was sent to torment him. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight 
In weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I want to go into this a little bit. High school. This is going to, one person, this is going to be a painful, like, four minutes. Okay, now you may be thinking, it's been a painful 20 minutes, son, and, and I understand that. But this next, so stick, stick with me. There's a quiz you're getting later in your high school class. Not really. Now, Joe, fire up the iPad. So this is the normal translation. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, in Greek, we got to get our Greek on this morning, kids. In Greek, there's no personal pronoun in front of power. You literally translate it, my grace is sufficient for you for power, or the power is made perfect in weakness. So we're not sure whose power we're talking about. The other thing you need to know is that this verb, teleo, is translated here, made perfect. But in every other instance it's used, it's translated, brought to an end, or completed, or finished. And so there are some scholars who argue that this isn't the best way to translate this verse. Now again, stick with me. So they put out, there's no personal pronoun, but secondly, teleo shouldn't be translated made perfect because it actually means brings to an end. And there's a different verb that Paul could have used if he wanted to talk about strength being perfected or matured. Now, if I've lost you completely, come back. Because here's the, here's the point. Whether you buy this, I, see, if, if you're going to do something like this, I want to show my work just a little bit. Because what I want to suggest is there are some folks that argue the better translation is this one. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for your, Paul's power, is brought to its end in weakness. In other words, if the verb means brought to its end, it can't be talking about God's power, because God's power is never brought to its end. So there are some scholars who argue the better way to translate this is God saying to Paul, my grace is sufficient because your power is ended in weakness. Your power, Paul, is brought to its end in weakness. If you translate it that way, that makes much better sense of a verb here that is used only once. But its root there is always used to be translated rest or dwell, and it's always used with teleo. So, if you lost that, the point is, if you translate it this way, it makes better sense of the next verse that follows. Which is, I know, this is fancy. We'll skip that one. And it means, more than anything else, that God has more need of our weakness than of our strength. Right? If the verse is, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power, your power is brought to its end in weakness. Now, agree or disagree, I think the principle's taught everywhere else. That means God has more need of our weakness than of our strength. It also means, think about what it means for a church. The evangelical addiction to the tools and technique, techniques of the age is in direct contrast to the prominent theme in Scripture of power and weakness. 
The strength and might of God in Christ is seen most clearly when the human agents of God's salvation are in positions of weakness and helplessness. And don't you see that all throughout the Scriptures? God arranges circumstances so that they are helpless. And He does it so that everyone will know He is the Lord. Now think about, think about the significance of this. We have this phrase, this cliche, we've, I'm sure you've heard in Christian circles. God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that? Okay, that's false. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10 it says, God will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Talking about temptation. We turn then and that, well, God will never give you more than you can handle, so all that you're dealing with in your life means you can handle it. No! God is actively, relentlessly, passionately in the business of giving you more than you can handle. So that you actually have to trust Him and not you. And I'm not saying that everything that comes into your life is from Him. Not all the suffering, I believe, is from Him. But God will use everything that does come into your life to teach you this lesson. And the lesson is this. His power is magnified when our power is limited. His power increases when my confidence in my own power decreases. So God is actively... I mean, what did He do to Gideon? He didn't say, hey Gideon, I'm choosing you because you're awesome. No, Gideon himself admitted, I'm the least. And God goes, perfect. And then I got 32,000 men. Nope, too many. 300 is great. That's suicide. Nope, it's called faith. Hey David, how about a sling, some stones, youngest kid in the camp. Why don't you go up against Goliath? Because you plus me equals victory. Against anything and anyone. See, these aren't cute stories. This is the way God works. So where should I put this treasure? Ah, I got it, jars of clay. Just to make sure everybody knows. Paul, you will feel the sentence of death upon you, but this will happen so that you won't trust in yourself. God is passionately in the business of giving us more than we can handle so that we might actually trust Him. Now, do we like this? Oh, I think not. (laughs) No, what's the American dream? The American dream is believing in yourself, right? This is the Disney worldview. Believe in yourself. Trust yourself. The American dream is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't even know what that means, but we say it a lot. Right? It's all about what you can accomplish. The rags to riches story. And certainly, in human terms, we can accomplish much. But in the kingdom, what looks like strength is often really weakness. Don't you know who I am? Says Pilate. Don't you know that God gives you whatever power you do have? says Jesus. Let me grab my sword, says Peter. I could call down 72,000 angels, says Jesus. And so in the kingdom it's flipped. What looks like strength is weakness. And what looks like weakness is strength. And so you have Jesus or Gideon or David or Paul, unschooled, ordinary disciples put in over their heads, called to do impossible things so that God gets all the credit. Now, he still doesn't do that, does he? 
See, there's this thing we say, God will never give you more than you can handle. I think that is just not true. My wife and I were in Indianapolis in December, which is where you want to be in December. <laughs> and and um, we were at a Campus Crusade for Christ conference. And I, I had been kind of marginally involved in Campus Crusade in college at Miami of Ohio. And there was someone on staff there at Miami of Ohio who is now running the campus ministry. So he knew me when I was a college kid. He was at this conference. And he came up to me, not that you're particularly interested, and looked at me after one of the talks and said, I couldn't stand you when you were in college. (laughs) Great to see you, bro. It's been so long. You were an arrogant, mouthy punk. I know this will shock you. I know, totally. You're like, oh, no way. And, and he said, I don't know what's happened. And, and we began to joke around. But my wife and I, were talking about, about it afterwards. And we could, we could think of all the things that have happened. Right? I mean, we've lost, we buried my dad, my father-in-law, my stepdad. We've given birth to a child with special needs, been diagnosed and wrestled through clinical anxiety and depression, seen people die who had no business dying so young, seen diseases afflict people that just are horrifying. Enough of that happens to you. And my wife and I keep being brought to the place where we go, my strength, my wisdom, our intelligence, our strategies, our financial prowess, our anything isn't up to this task. And so what does God do in those moments? He does some of his best work. Because when our power is limited, his power is magnified. But I don't want my power limited. I like my power. Think of the American church. Does the American church ever boast in its weakness? No. Who do we show off if we want to tell the world that being a Christian is awesome? We're going to show off our rock stars. We're going to show off our athletes. And hallelujah for them. But who did Jesus show off? Hey, here's a woman that had seven demons cast out of her. Hey, here's a leper that I touched and was clean. Right? I mean, Jesus would show off the janitors of our world. He wouldn't show off the rock stars. God is much more interested in boasting in human weakness than we are. We're fascinated with our strength. And may I suggest one of the reasons why we don't see much of God's power in America is because we make so much of our own. Hey guys, if we just find the next killer series and the next cool program and the next awesome like church building, it'll be great. And God says, you know what? If you want to put your faith in that, that's awesome. I got work to do. You don't go to the third world and see people boasting in how great their sermons are or how many people podcast. You don't go to the third world and find people ranking the fastest growing churches. That's antithetical to the Jesus that says the first will be last and the last will be first. So the call is to boast in weakness. We did baptisms uh, months ago. Church I was at, and, and, and I, there's not a Bible verse that says you've got to be baptized by like an official person. And so there was a mom who came up with two of her teenage boys and, and, and said, hey, my, my boys want to be baptized. And I said awesome. Why don't you baptize them? And she backs away. She says, I'm not worthy. Now, I didn't have time 
to address that, but I do now. <laughs> Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what I wish I could have said to her, and we'll wrap up with this. Who does God use? See, this whole strength made perfect in weakness or our strength being limited in weakness, see, this is really good news, believe it or not. Because there isn't a single person in this room that isn't limited in some way. There isn't a single person in this room that hasn't come up against disappointment or hurt or pain or something outside of their control that they just go, I'd give anything to be able to change that, but I can't. And to a mom that would say, I'm not worthy. This is what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. This is Paul writing to a cocky church. Brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called to Jesus. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? For the same reason he's done it everywhere else. So that no one will boast before him. So let's talk about whether or not you're worthy. Were you murdering Christians before you became one? Because that's what Paul was doing. Were you getting drunk and murdering Having, having, having the husband of the wife you've had an affair with murdered and then writing the worship manual for the church because that's what David was doing? Or how about a thousand wives and concubines and then writing a, a poem celebrating fidelity and monogamy? That's what Solomon was doing. Or how about Jacob, the cheat and the swindler? Perfect! We'll rename him Israel and call him to give birth to 12 tribes. Abraham selling out his wife twice to Pharaoh's harem to save his own skin. Perfect. We'll call you the father of faith. Peter, deny me three times, I'll restore you three times, and upon your confession in you, I will build my church. Who's worthy? I'll tell you, not one of us is worthy. Not one of us. It is to his Glory that God uses jars of clay. It is to His glory that He uses the weak and the shameful. It is to His glory. It is to His glory that someone like me could be up on a stage like this. I don't deserve it. It is to His glory He can use someone like you in wherever He has you. See, brothers and sisters, this is great news. Because it means two things. Number one, not one of us has to pretend anymore. I am sick and tired of Western American Christianity that says you've got to pretend to have it together. Pretending hinders the work of the kingdom. Honesty facilitates it. What's the first step in getting help for your marriage? Admitting there's a problem. But so often in church we're taught to pretend. It's just fine, thank you. Glory be to God. God is good all the time. But I could be filled with doubt and pain and anger, but I'd never say it here. This is to be the place where weakness is on display. This is to be the place where it's okay to be in process. Because if the gospel isn't for us, then it's not for anybody. So this is good news. This is good news. 
Because we don't have to pretend it's okay to admit we're exhausted. It's okay to admit we're broken. It's okay. Now, of course, God's work is bringing us from those places. Of course. He doesn't validate our sin. I get that. But so many of the one another's in the Scriptures assume the sinfulness of God's people and assume the working out of holiness as people are honest with one another. And so it's okay to be at the end of your rope. It's okay to feel over your head. It's okay to not feel worthy to baptize your children. But the good news is it ain't about you. It ain't about your worth. It's about how good he is. And if that's the case, and if it is the case that his power is magnified when ours is limited, then there's room for everybody. So brothers and sisters, would you stand with me as we worship together? Now there, there, right in the middle of church, there was some clapping. Now I want to... Please don't ever participate. I want you to be passive spectators, please. <laughs> would you close your eyes a moment? And the reason we thought it so fitting to kind of open up a prayer room on a day like today was there might be a few of us who are just in the place of in over our heads. And we want to make it safe to boast in our weakness. It is a courageous thing to ask to be prayed for because it's an admission that you can't control it, you can't fix it. But I'm telling you what, God does some of his best work just from that place. And so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mighty God, would you create this place to be a community where people can authentically and relentlessly and ruthlessly follow you. Where all are summoned by grace to be followers of this Christ. And that room is made for imperfect followership. Lord, we give you glory and praise that you would use people like us. And we ask you that you would draw near in these moments to those of us whose hearts are very broken and very heavy. May we boast in our weakness, for when we are weak, you are strong.